From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Listening to 101.9 High FM, I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review, uh, your uh, Jewish news and current affairs culture show. Good to be with you on this Monday morning, nice and crisp. Uh, You can tell winter is definitely coming as it rolls over the high felt, and uh, that's okay. I suppose we can live with winter. There's soup, and there's fires, and there's um, all sorts of uh, lovely things like that, so uh, that is... Is, is cool and also we have a nice warm studio uh, except you know warm on the airways actually on the inside it's quite cold uh, but that doesn't matter it's good to be with you nonetheless uh, as usual on the show we're going to be bringing you all sorts of different aspects going on in the Jewish world we'll be talking a little bit later about the Natalie Portman issue uh, that gave us two new cycles of angry recriminations from the left and the right uh, so we'll chat and see did she do the right thing what was was she up against what did she do it for uh, i saw even something on when when you know, you know that when caroline glick is writing about this on breitbart that uh, it has uh, uh in, sort of created uh, some incendiary uh, views on the topic so we will be uh, discussing that and uh, checking out uh, a little bit on which happened last week uh, I don't know has anyone ever, has anyone, Did anyone see the video with the drones uh, It was very very cool I thought they had 300 drones And uh, they were making different uh, Different signs in the sky I thought it was lovely uh, So that, that was great uh, and we want you to be part of the conversation. So please, by all means, 34519, that's our SMS line. WhatsApp, 0618951019, that's also the Telegram number. Uh, and there's also the email on air, chaifem.com. Tweet us at, at chaifem. Uh, and we're happy to be with you and have the discussion, which is what we are looking to do. And first up, before we get into all the topics, we actually have a guest in studio. Uh, long-time listeners to the show will know Yaffa Frederick. She is a uh, foreign policy expert and uh, someone knows all sorts of things about international relations. Uh, and sometimes when she's in the country, we whip her into studio to uh, have a chat to her about what is going on. Yaffa, welcome to the New Blue Review. Nice to be with you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, you, you might as well take over the show at this point. <laughs> Uh, you come in so regularly. Uh, so lots going on in the Jewish world and in, in internationally. Uh, w- the the big one, which I think is going to start becoming a focus in the next few weeks, is going to be this embassy move. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump announced it quite some time ago, yeah. caused uh, a few unhappy voices uh, in different parts of the world. Probably uh, more than a few. <laughs> But now we are actually uh, running up to to the to the actual date. It's on the fourteenth of February. Why that date for so a start? It's the fourteenth of Mar- uh, May, actually. Of May, May, not February. So, I mean, that's the English uh, date for Israeli yeah. independence, Yom uh So it'll be seventy years, according to the English date, not the Hebrew date, um, which has certainly not been lost on Palestinian leadership either, who have uh, all issued some pretty strong statements of it's no coincidence that it's on the anniversary of what they referred to um, as the Nakba, and both the uh, Israeli ambassador to the U.S. and the U.S. Israeli, the U.S. ambassador to Israel have had to kind of fudge uh, the significance of the date in some press statements to try to, I guess, ease what is becoming increasingly tense 
events in the lead up to the actual embassy move. Yeah, Hamas seems to be using it as an excuse for these uh, protests. Yes. Uh, very, you know, very obvious sort of march of return to Jerusalem, that sort of thing. So it, it is certainly being used by extremists in the in the region as some sort of a rallying point. Yeah, I mean, even um, reporters and journalists who perhaps the Jewish community would not always say is the most pro-Israel are actually taking that stance. Um, so Nick Robertson, who's uh, the international diplomatic editor for CNN, has actually written and reported on this extensively that the Hamas protests along the Gaza border are timed very, very specifically. Um, and he actually expects that they will continue to heat up in the lead up to May 14th. So the protests we've seen along the border now, despite um, the numbers and the casualties, uh, will continue to go up. And I mean, with the Hamas goal of being painting Israel as the big bad beast that they see it as um, in the lead up to the 14th. Yeah, it's interesting because the, the, after some of the initial casualties, there did seem to be some dying down on the border. So it'll be an interesting question as to whether it actually does flare up again and they're able to really mobilize uh, around this Jerusalem issue. Uh, the mechanics of this, though, are, are quite difficult because anyone who's had to buy an apartment in Jerusalem will know that uh, it's uh, a crowded place. There's not always lots of space. Uh, it's, it can be a bit of a tough one. So how, how are the Americans looking to, to deal with that? It's actually a lot easier for the U.S. because the U.S. has a consulate in Jerusalem and an embassy in Tel Aviv. So it's actually more of a switching places and switching door signs. And so obviously certain personnel um, and bureaucratic elements. But really it's taking down the consulate sign and putting up the embassy sign. So it's a much smoother transition since no new real estate actually needs to be purchased for this to happen. So they're basically going to swap. I mean, the, I think... To be perfectly honest, most of the opposition in the State Department on this uh, thing is coming from the fact that the, em- the the current embassy is really nice. It's like on the beachfront in Tel Aviv. I mean, who wants to go give up Tel Aviv beachfront <laughs> property? Certainly, if I had to process my visa application, I might make the trip to Tel Aviv to do it. Um, but, but the ambassador himself is actually now going to be in, in, in Jerusalem. And yes, yes, Mr. Friedman, Ambassador Friedman, um, who is uh, pretty close to Trump, actually, um, but... He's also probably more religious than some of our previous ambassadors have been um, in the region and I think kind of understands and appreciates the historical and religious significance of the U.S. recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. I mean, I think something that perhaps listeners don't realize is if you have an American passport, but you were born in Jerusalem, there's no there's no country. It just says Jerusalem, no Israel, no nothing. Um, and so the idea that the U.S. is finally going to acknowledge that Jerusalem is more than an international city is hugely significant, not just for the Jewish community, but actually for most Americans who are supportive of the move, though most of the international community is not. So that's uh, quite interesting. And, and in actual practical terms, it'll just mean that Friedman is in Jerusalem, but not much else is going to change. There's not much space to actually change much. Else. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it's more, and I, I come back to this all the time. It's symbolic, um, but the symbolism is worth millions, right? It's, it's it's hard to really quantify the symbolism because no other country is is making the same move. Though there is talk that some other kind of smaller countries that the U.S. often uh, allies with in the U.N. might follow suit. Um, often some of these random Central American countries. Um, but for now, it's it's just the U.S. That said, the U.S. is a global Goliath, and so if the U.S. is making such a move. Um, 
this is partially why I think you see the Palestinians even more adamant that they are not coming to the table anytime soon. Well, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, there's Honduras, I think, is talking about it, Guatemala. It was not that unusual. I mean, be- before about 1973, there were a lot of countries that had embassies in Jerusalem. I think there were certain African countries and certain uh, South American and countries. And they all discovered beachfront property. Then they all discovered beachfront property. Okay, so it'll be interesting to see. And then they might start looking for a more permanent embassy once they're sort of installed or they're likely to build something new? Um, possibly. I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever been to a U.S. embassy, uh, you know, in Pretoria or elsewhere, but these are fortresses. <laughs> these are not things you build overnight, and they often have more security than in any other building. Um, I remember being in Swaziland, and it was like you could spot that U.S. embassy from kilometers away. Uh, so it's, it's not something that you can just build overnight. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I mean... Right now, I would say the State Department is not where uh, this administration is putting most of its money or support. Um, as you know, right now, we actually don't have a Secretary of State. We have one that's going through the confirmation process, and it's very unclear right now if he's actually going to get the votes he needs. This is Mike Pompeo, who's currently our CIA director. Um, but he has made some very controversial statements about uh, the gay community, um, in particular, that are not sitting particularly well with a lot of the Democrats. Um, and he's much more interventionist and tough on countries like North Korea um, and Iran, which upsets some of the more isolationist Republicans like Rand Paul. So we have a State Department that's kind of leaderless, which means that um, our U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, is actually the one who's kind of the mouthpiece right now for it, though she got into some hot water last week where uh, she and the administration seemed to disagree on what the agreement was um, in the public eye, which made for some interesting... Um, the, the agreement like, around the embassy? No, so this is actually much larger. Um, so Russian sanctions, new Russian sanctions. Um, according to Ambassador Haley, the U.S. administration, through the Treasury Department, agreed to slap Russia with a bunch of new sanctions, because as we know, Russia has been up to uh, no good, very bad things in Syria and in the U.K. most recently. Um, but when she issued that statement a day later, the White House came out and said, no, we didn't. Um, you must be confused, to which she said, I do not get confused. Um, so that that was some interesting uh, little sexist rhetoric playing out <laughs> um, in mainstream media. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, we're going to discuss the whole Russia issue and what's going on in the White House, but now we're going to take a short break and we'll come back with speaking again to Yaffa Frederick. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Good to be with you on this Monday morning. And if you want to be part of the show, please, by all means, 34519. Uh, that's the SMS line. You can WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019. Uh, email us on airchaifem.com and tweet us at Chaifem. And uh, yeah, we're happy to take any of your questions. Uh, we're speaking to Yaffa Frederick today. She's a foreign policy expert and uh, talking about what's going on in the Middle East and more broadly. Yaffa, I wanted to bring you up uh, on, on that issue of Pompeo. I mean, when Mike, Mike it was Mike Tillerson, right? Uh, Rex Tillerson, excuse Rex me. Rex Tillerson, yeah. Um, got elected there was some sort of complaints uh, he was kind of conservative he had been in like all of these big corporate positions people weren't really happy that this guy who was kind of in charge of oil and gas was suddenly going to be running the, the outreach in terms of the the u.s uh, and then kind of people warmed to him a little bit he kind of seemed to be doing a tough job under trump uh and and, and trying to get stuff done and then he got 
then one day he got fired over Twitter and you kind of felt sorry for him. What, what is the deal here? Where, where is it going on? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'd, I'd beg to differ on people warming to him, actually, particularly anyone who worked at the State Department warming to him. Um, what, what really happened is, I mean, Rex Tillerson was the head of ExxonMobil, right? right? So this was not a guy who had any political experience, but he certainly had some business acumen given the vast empire he was running. Um, he was a Trump supporter. He was nominated to a position for which he had few qualifications on paper, uh, certainly in the diplomatic realm. And then when he got to the State Department, he didn't make many friends. So he, he had a difficult confirmation process. He got confirmed. But then he got to the State Department and he started downsizing and axing people. So that's not a way to win friends and influence people, which you perhaps expect the CEO of ExxonMobil to recognize, but it didn't seem to bother him. He was trying to run it like a business. So increase efficiency, decrease employment and paychecks, essentially. Um, and, you know, the problem was he wasn't really aligned with Trump on key policy issues. And I wouldn't actually say he was more conservative than Trump. I would actually say he's probably more progressive on some elements because he wanted to take, for example, a tougher line with Russia that Trump perhaps did not want to take. He was in support of the Iran deal, which, as we know, Trump has not been particularly supportive of. He was pushing for much more um, earlier diplomatic talks with North Korea before Trump had really kind of hopped on board. And so when Trump fired him, it was with the idea that he's not aligned with the Secretary of State. And how can the Secretary of State be the mouthpiece of the president when they don't actually agree on some core foreign policy issues? Um, Mike Pompeo, much more aligned with Trump on all foreign policy issues, um, much more of a friend and a confidant. And so the idea is Trump wants an administration that reflects his values. And a lot of the firings and resignations we've seen kind of reflect Trump clearing house as he tries to create a cabinet that is actually more aligned with him. Mm. Now, in in terms of the the, the Middle East and the Iran deal, because that actually does uh, have quite a lot of uh, impact about what's going on. We're, we're no longer seeing a, a cold war, if you like, or even a, a quiet war between the Israelis and, and the Iranians on the Syrian front. I, I saw a stat the other day that talked about 100 sorties being flown and and, and bombed and uh, in in the last while. Uh, the Iranian deal is coming up, which has maybe restrained the Iranians. Where do you think that's going? What's, what is the deal in, in terms of Syria and the Iranians? I mean, so, so the Iran deal is, is a separate beast from Syria. Um, so recertification is coming up in May. Um, the, Trump and likely Pompeo uh, do not want to recertify that deal, which comes up every few months for recertification, unless major amendments are made by the allies. So yeah, I'm talking about the UK and France uh, that have been party to these deals. It's unlikely that the allies are going to make the amendments that the Trump administration wants, uh, which means that the US may decertify the deal. Um, and then it's anybody's guess what happens, because um, Iran, by and large, by all UN estimates right now, has actually been compliant with the deal at least on paper. Um, there haven't been any gross violations of the deal. So if Iran doesn't have to comply by that deal, who knows? Do they, you know, do they continue development of their nuclear program? Does Israel become a more major target? It's hard to say what the Iranians are going to do, but the U.S. is going to have to figure out how to keep Iran in check, and ideally without the use of military force. Um, now, when it comes to Syria, I mean, Syria is, is a beast because there really is no winning in Syria. So what you have now is... Um, a game of chess. I mean, you, you have Assad as the Syrian dictator aligned with the Russians and the Iranians. Now, by and large, they're fighting rebel groups and to a lesser extent ISIS, which is which has been significantly weakened, but is still present. Then you have the U.S., 
which is fighting ISIS primarily and providing a little bit of ground support to rebel groups. We only have about 2,000 troops on the ground. Um, and then you have the Kurds who are fighting ISIS but are loathed by the Turks. Um, so it's, it's just it's a complicated no-win situation. And so what you saw uh, over a week ago now was after uh, Assad was accused of carrying out a chemical weapons attack, um, in eastern Ghouta and Duma, um, the U.S. had to respond, but the U.S. doesn't want to start a war with Russia right now. And so the three places that they struck were places where there were low civilian populations and pretty far from Russian troops, because the last thing you want to do is hit a Russian base, and now you're at war with Putin. So do you think that this is likely to actually retard um, Assad's ability to use chemical weapons at all? Uh, eh, it's super. It's surface level, right? So... The U.S. was strategic in the targets it chose because it, it didn't want to go to war with Russians or Iranians over this, and it didn't want to kill civilians unnecessarily. However, if you're Assad, are you going to put most of your chemical weapons in those places, or are you going to embed them in you know, higher civilian centers or amid Russian bases? Um, and while I don't have definitive proof of exactly where these bases are, there is a lot of speculation that many of the chemical weapons are not being stored um, where was struck. And also, there are different kinds of chemical weapons. And so, Assad has been very creative in that he uses multiple kinds. Uh, he's not just, you know, sarin. Sometimes chlorine works for him. Um, and so, you have to really strike at all of these. But to do so without starting a major war there, um, it's frankly damn near impossible. And what do you make of the fact that uh, the, sort of the Russian narrative that this was like a false attack has managed to make its way into all sorts of media? I mean, uh, they, they really managed to push back on this idea that, that, that it was a side and somehow they're blaming the riddles. I mean, I personally think it's ridiculous, but there's definitely purchase in the libertarian groups in America who don't want to see wars and some of the anti-American groups. Well, so I think it's important to differentiate that libertarians aren't saying Assad didn't com- commit an act you know, a criminal act by uh, using chemical weapons against his own people. What they're saying is it's not our job to clean up the messes of the Middle East. And if you look at American history, (laughs) frankly, over the last 50 years, you could see why someone would be a little bit suspect of the U.S. getting involved. It's not always effective. It doesn't always work. And even if you are involved long term, it doesn't necessarily guarantee success. But the denial, I mean, that that's Russian propaganda. And if I can say so, it's Russian fake news. There's no one denying that a chemical weapons attack. I mean, I say this as a journalist who's been working with our reporters in Syria on the ground. It's like, I see the evidence. I see what a chlorine attack looks like. And it is very unique. It is not something that comes from typical weapons. Um, there was a chlorine attack carried out. Now, you want to dispute who carried it out? Well, here's a question. Where do rebels get chlorine from? Who really has access to this? Um, all intelligence agencies, I mean, the U.S. intelligence agency, the U.K. and the French authorities all agree this is Assad. So either you have no faith in your intelligence institutions, which perhaps certain members of the current American administration might agree with, or you accept that this is a chemical attack carried out by a butcher. And Russia perhaps doesn't like the idea of being associated with a man who we describe as a butcher, but that's a bet that they've made, and now they have to sleep in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting uh, to see where that's going. And and, and in terms of uh, that, I think what you're saying from the intelligence services, what was interesting on this strike is that they managed to get the UK and, and France on board. I don't yeah, know, it was I don't a coalition if, strike. I don't know if that was like payback for the fact that uh, the Russians are busy gassing people in the UK. or. I mean, look, it, I, if I had to say who's the angriest at Russia right now, I actually would not say it's the United States. I would say it's the UK because what we saw with the Skirpal attack weeks ago, it's not the first time that ex-Russian you know, officers have been killed on British soil. This is actually, unfortunately 
an alarming trend. Um, and, and it is one of the times where a child of one of those officers was also implicated in the same attack. Um, so Theresa May is, is not holding back here. And you also have to remember that regardless of who uh, is running the U.S. or the U.K. right now, it's an incredibly strong alliance. And so, you know, multilateral um Coalitions are much stronger than unilateral uh, countries going in. And Macron certainly um, has a vested interest in Syria. I mean, you, have, you also have to recognize kind of the colonial connections between some of these European countries and Middle Eastern countries as well. And where does this put Trump? I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of been a fan of Putin. He seems to, they seem to have a good connection. Uh, but at the same time, he seems to be rubbing up against the Russians in Syria, although he wants to get out. It's like he's not completely sure what to do in terms of Syria. Well, so the irony is that, um, I mean, maybe it was a week and a half before the actual chemical attack. Trump said he wanted to leave Syria. He really wanted to draw down. And then this chemical attack happened. And if you're the U.S. and you hold yourself to the standard that you are kind of the world's police, whether you like it or or not, you can't just draw down after an attack like that. Um, So Trump is in a difficult position. I mean, when it comes to Putin, I don't think Trump wants to be besties with Putin. I don't think he wants to sip margaritas with Putin. I think what he's trying to do is establish a working relationship, which he does not appear to have right now. Um, But it's inevitable. I mean, Russia is always going to be a thorn in the U.S. side, and, and Putin wants to be that thorn. I mean, he wants to be edgy. He wants to push up against U.S. power, and he wants to make himself a bigger power. I mean, the idea is that Russia went from the Soviet era, where it really was a superpower, to now kind of just trying to claw its way back to the top. Yeah, certainly there are all sorts of very uh, uh, sort of vulture-like states in that area, whether it's the Iranians or the Turks or the Russians all kind of want to increase uh, their, their, their stake in that area. Uh, Yaffa, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. It's been really good uh, catching up and understanding what's going on. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Uh, there we go. Yaffa Frederick, we're going to take a short break now, listen to some music, and when we come back, we'll be talking more Israeli-Jewish issues. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. Welcome back to the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman. That was Fika Pak and Simanayim on 101.9 Chai FM. Hope you are enjoying the music and the show on the New Blue Review today. Uh, interesting stuff with Yaffa Frederick, uh, understanding the international relations uh, community and uh, environment and what's going on at the moment. I'd love to hear your view on what's going on with this Natalie Portman issue. Uh, are people really that upset about it? Not. Uh, it looks as though it's very much an internal Jewish argument. I was uh, talking to some people, uh, reporters from CNN the other day, and they said that no one had even heard of the Genesis Prize before uh, today. And... <coughs> Excuse me, uh, uh, and, and suddenly Natalie Portman wasn't doing this, and some of the BDS folk got quite excited about it. But uh, generally speaking, it uh, wasn't such uh, a big thing outside of the Jewish world. Um, if you don't know, the Genesis Prize, it is a prize that is given out to major Jewish influential figures uh, every single year uh, and uh, they they go and they get a bunch of money to give to a charity of their choice and different people have been given the prize including Kirk Douglas who of course uh, is, is himself Jewish um, and, and I think Michael Bloomberg was given the prize at one point so it has been given to a number of, of people. It has been criticized for actually not giving it to anybody who's doing something new or interesting um, but 
but it doesn't seem to have you know it doesn't seem to have uh, uh, you know, stopped anyone from getting it so the, the Genesis prize is there what does it do what doesn't it do and and it was supposed to be given uh, to to someone who uh, you know who, who was going to to embody these Jewish values of the Genesis prize and supposed to be non-political so in any case, that 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 was it, and they decided to award it to to Natalie Portman. Now, Natalie Portman has had an interesting relationship with Israel. Uh, she's very proud of her Hebrew roots, and she is, of course, Israeli and Jewish. Um, and and uh, you know, she often will you'll find her doing uh, things where she will. I've, I've seen her on Vanity Fair, for example. Um, where she was doing like a Hebrew language uh, discussion for them, which was quite interesting. Uh, and then an- another case, uh, uh, you know, she she took an Amos Oz novel. He's a famous um, novelist, a writer, and she she's looking at putting his work in- into it. So, so it's not as if she's disconnected, and she certainly hasn't aligned herself with any anti-Israel groups, although she has been uh, very dismissive of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, she's not a fan of the government per se, without having you know spoken about any BDS-related stuff. So uh, she she did she has done this, and she kind of was very excited to accept uh, the prize. And then all of a sudden, uh, beginning of the weekend, basically, uh, she issued a statement saying, in light of recent events, uh, she can't go to Israel to accept the prize and it was very badly sort of vaguely worded uh, and and there were a lot of responses people very angry people saying is she now supporting the BDS what's the whole deal uh, and then she made a, a clarifying statement where she said no uh, she didn't really want to be there as associated with the Prime Minister she didn't like Benjamin Netanyahu so that that seems to be of what she's done I'm, I must say I don't think that it was a particularly uh, smart move on, on her behalf uh, there's lots of people who to accept these sorts of awards including people like Amos Oz and Elie Wiesel and whatever who have gone and accepted the awards uh, and then are, are perfectly critical of the government Um and I think perhaps what sort of happened is that uh, because there is some connection to the Prime Minister's Office of the Prize, um, she she decided that because she wasn't in favor of the government, she wouldn't go do it. But I do think that that was uh, the wrong move, especially given uh, the the sort of main boycott issue at the moment. Uh, you, you can't, I think, be, be giving in to any kind of movement that looks like that. If she had a, if she, if she wanted to accept the prize in the first place, there's nothing that sort of changed her mind. And if she really wanted to speak out, I think that she should have taken the opportunity to take the prize, um, and, and then, and then said whatever she wanted to say. I mean, it's her prize, uh, after all. So it is a little bit of an absurd situation and something, uh, which then, you know, and then you get all the haters who are like, well, no, she never liked Israel anyway. She was always anti-Israel. She's a left winger, da, da, da. Uh, and I don't think, uh, I don't think that that's useful either. I don't, you know, it just creates more division, uh, in, in the community. I mean, I, I see, see here Gimple the Fool is WhatsApp in and saying Natalie Portman's Jewish values pre- prevented her from the prize, but didn't stop her from marrying out. And therefore she's a hypocrite. And this is the kind of thing that, 
you start to get uh, when <coughs> when you have these sorts of situations, uh, people not really, uh, you know, you, you're playing the person and, and, and they did something stupid and, uh, and like bringing up all of their other past indiscretions. So uh, it does create quite a lot of division uh, and I think it's a very unnecessary episode. Anyway, we're going to take a, a short break now and then when we're coming back, we'll be talking about Israeli solar power. 101.9 I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome back to the show. Uh, good to be with you uh, <coughs> on this Monday morning. And moving on to some positive stuff. Uh, interesting stat coming out of, of Israel. Uh, a recent, recently on a th- Saturday afternoon in Israel, solar energy was producing 13.4% of the country's total electricity consumption, which is a record in terms of uh, what it has been producing in the past. Uh, And it's quite interesting because you'd think that Israel would be a leader in the solar sector. There's so much technology in the country and uh, they obviously are a desert, so there's so much sunlight. But it turns out that it takes quite quite a long time for the idea of solar to really catch on. I mean, if you're interested, you should go look up uh, a guy is called Captain Sunshine. That's his actual name. Uh, well, not his actual name, but his actual nickname. Uh, Yossi Abramovitz. And he's, he's sort of come to, he came to Israel as a, as an immigrant. He was a writer and a social activist. And he pitched up the kibbutz, which he had been on as a teenager. And he was so excited because this kibbutz was sort of run by solar energy. And then when he asked the actual kibbutz how much of that energy was solar, and they said, oh, actually, none. We sort of use the solar water heaters, but it's it's so difficult to actually get what's called PV, which is uh, photovoltaic, you know, the ones with basically anything solar that you see with uh, with a, a panel, you know, the, the bright and shiny things. Um, and so he, he started this basically a fight to get solar power introduced into the country. Uh, and it took him, he says, like seven years to get through all the um, bureau- bureaucratic hurdles uh, to to create solar power in, in Israel, only like one or two years to actually put it on the ground. And, and so he started with... Um, he started with one kibbutz, and and that's uh, kibbutz Keturah in in the Negev, and now it's actually started to um, started to actually take off, and also innovation and uh, what would you say, uh, just general technological advancement in this field has actually increased the amount of solar um, of solar energy. Uh, up to this point, uh, currently only 2.6% of Israel's electricity is actually generated via renewable. Uh, they have a lot of coal, actually, and a lot of it actually comes from South Africa, funnily enough. Uh, so the government wants to have a goal of 10% renewable energy by 2020. Uh, so it, it is interesting, and it is interesting to see that it is coming further, uh, including uh, I, I have to say, uh, into Africa. So this particular group, uh, Yossi Abramovitz's group, actually has been doing a lot of solar development. Uh, they did one in Rwanda. I see in West Africa they're doing something. So it is actually a, a place whereby you can start to really get things done in terms of the solar sector. Uh, and it is uh, you know, quite interesting to see where things are going on this. So uh, Israel is starting to get its solar house in order. And uh, if you ever have the opportunity, you should actually go check out Kibbutz Keturah because it is a, f- 
uh, a fabulous and interesting uh, place. Uh, and you can actually see the solar panels and how they work and how they're expanding it so that the Bedouin communities have solar power and all this sort of thing. So uh, it is coming. And um, who knows, maybe we will see in Israel uh, and indeed the world in the next while that is very, very strongly organized, not around normal coal-fired power stations, uh, but actually running in the uh, in 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 the so in the solar space and the wind space as well all right let's take another song now uh, and uh, listen to some more music and then when we come back we'll talk about some israeli film a frequency like no other 101.9 high fm 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the show once again. Nine, two, ten to ten uh, at the moment on the show. Uh, now, what I'm excited about at the moment is this amazing uh, renaissance, if you like, in Israeli culture that we're seeing. Uh, we, you know, often when you wanted to watch Israeli films or, or, or engage with Israeli uh, how do you say culture just in general back in the day first of all your Hebrew had to be fairly good uh, and second of all typically to get hold of films you had to wait for a film festival uh, or something like that uh, and what I'm amazed about is the number of new opportunities even in English for you to actually engage so uh, some of you if you listen to podcasts you could try out the, the there's something called the, the Promised Podcast which is a pretty good interesting news program uh, on on Israeli uh, political culture uh, and then uh, there, there there are a number of uh, others Israel story that's on the podcast scene but the the real change has not been uh, in movies uh, it's really been in series you know now that Netflix is there and it's pretty much like a democratic platform where if someone can make a decent enough movie it can be streamed to anyone we're seeing this real flowering of interest in Israeli you could call it film but it's not really a film it's a set of series so of course the big breakthrough one was Fauda which is about uh, people in the West Bank with uh, with the Palestinians versus the Israelis, which was so successful that it's made both sides of the debate angry, uh, and the BDS is trying to get rid of it. Uh, duh. Uh, so, so that's been a big one. But uh, connected to that, there was another one called False Flag, which recently aired on 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 Fox Entertainment, which was pretty good. There's Mossad 101, which was another one. So th- there's all of these uh, Israeli. <clears throat> films that are coming out on series and I see now that another one has been picked up by um, by by some Americans it's called Navisu uh, which is about an Ashkenazi Israeli family headed by an Ethiopian mother a uh, father and an Ashkenazi mother and, and talking about some of the challenges of uh, of growing up in a multicultural family. And for American viewers, the Fox TV News Network is renaming the show Culture Clash as a pilot focusing on a blended family created by an Ethiopian refugee and a white Midwestern woman. So it's very interesting that they've picked it up. And... Uh, uh, and and the people who who created it uh, also had a hand in creating Monsters Ball and of course Modern Family, which is uh, precisely, I suppose, what this is all about. Comes in the same week as t- t- Israeli TV shows won five awards at the uh, um, inaugural Cannes Series Festival in France. So you can now do it by series. One called When Heroes Fly, and another one called Megul. So interesting to see the flowering of Jewish culture coming out of Israel at the moment, and I think very. Impressive and very exciting 
for all of those uh, of you who like uh, to enjoy a bit of a good film from time to time and want to see the latest and greatest in creativity coming out of that sector. Now, I just wanted to finish off on a good news story locally for today. Uh, I saw that over the weekend, lots of people were doing uh, lots of different things. Some people were sleeping, some people were relaxing. It had been a big week last week with Yom Ha'atzma'ut and Yom HaShoah. So a lot of the community organizations had been pushing themselves. And despite this, the Union of Jewish Women uh, and, uh, and the South African Union of Jewish Students decided to go out on Earth Day um, to go to the Nombalanda Kresh in Soweto and they went out there and they were doing paintings and looking after the kids and uh, doing all sorts of things around that and uh, looks like they got a whole bunch of volunteers just from the pictures that I'm seeing on Facebook and I know that the Union of Jewish Women does a lot of uh, good work in terms of of that stuff and and so does the South African Union of Jewish Students and it's just good to see uh, the South African Jewish community getting out there helping in the broader community uh, doing their bit not for publicity but just because it's sort of the right thing to do uh, and and really enjoying it and engaging young people in a process of tikkun olam so I think it is very very exciting and um, if you are a supporter of those organizations or other organizations that are supported by it uh, you can see that your money is going to good work uh, even if you're a member uh, or you're not a member, I would encourage you to, to actually be part of these sorts of processes. Uh, you know, they don't change the whole world, but we have lots of problems here, uh, and a good it seems like a good start uh, in, in getting things on the right track. So well done to those organizations who are going out there uh, and doing their bit to make our country and our city a better place and not just sleeping in on a Sunday like <clears throat> like I was. So, yep, that's that's pretty much it. Brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you, Craig, for helping us on the production side, uh, as well as Mandy helps put the show together, uh, Vusi, Tabo, everyone at the station, and we will chat to you again next week on the New Blue Review.